Hey, have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Well, Anchor is a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing your podcast. And best of all, it's 100% free and ridiculously easy to use. I love it for the simple fact that it brings the sponsors to you. You don't have to search for them, and they distribute it to all the major platforms for you. So if you want to start a podcast and make money doing it, go to anchor.fm slash start. Again, anchor.fm slash S-T-A-R-T to join me and diverse community of podcasters already using Anchor. And that's it. Let's go. Allow me to reintroduce myself. What's up, people? Welcome to the podcast, Supreme Decisions Legal Minute. Today, I want to talk about standing and the aspects of it, because one of the ways that the state or whatever tries to assert a right or privilege upon you is through standing. Now, let's go over some real quick. I'm going to go into a couple of different things to give you the real idea or the real aspect of standing and why it's important, especially when it comes to a legal point of view. When we talk about a traffic citation, we also talked about the Fourth Amendment right to free movement. I'm going to go into a crime for the first part of this. The elements of a crime is one, the occurrence of a loss or injury. Two, is the criminal causation of that loss or injury. And three, the identity of the defendant as the perpetrator of the crime. And then when we go to Shearer v. Cullen, 481-1973, for a crime to exist, there must be an injured party. There can be no sanction or penalty imposed upon one because of the exercise of constitutional rights. The reason why that is important because in Shearer v. Cullen, they state there must be an injured party. And then the elements of a crime is the occurrence of a loss or injury, which is damage to person or damage to property. Now, courts need a legal basis to adjudicate any matter. And moving forward minus that basis equates the abuse of judicial power, which is a violation of due process. As we go into this, it's important to understand that aspect. When you talk about standing, Worth v. Sheldon, 422 U.S. 490, 1975. The plaintiff must assert his own legal rights and interests and cannot rest his claim of relief on the legal rights or interests of a third party. When you have a prosecutor, they are the third party because they're trying to assert the rights or standing of another person. When you're talking about, oh, the state versus whoever, you're talking about a third party asserting the rights of someone else, which takes away the right to, one, confront your accuser. Two, you have someone else stating claims to something that is not theirs. And in the United States versus the Interstate Commerce Commission, if a plaintiff lacks standing, courts are legally, constitutionally incapable of proceeding because courts can only adjudicate justable controversies. 
And the easy part of that is they can only adjudicate matters where there is an injured party, where there is a claim or there was a loss, which is why whenever I say certain things like traffic court does not exist because traffic court, there is no injured party. If you are not in an accident, which is damage to property or person, there is no crime. So when you're talking about that and they'll let you know, oh, you're participating in a privilege. And that's something I'm gonna go into later as well. But you have to understand the requirement of standing has a core component derived directly from the constitution. A plaintiff must allege personal injury fairly traceable to the defendant alleged unlawful conduct and likely to be redressed by the requested relief, which is generally a civil suit, unless there is an actual crime, which is damage to person or damage to property, which in a lot of cases, the crime comes from those acts performed in the manner of a felony. So, and that case is Allen v. Wright, 468 U.S. 737-1984. Now, the reason why I bring that up is because the one thing that's in the news a lot lately is Botham John and the young lady, I believe her name is Amy Geiger or something like that, from Dallas, who stated that she had walked in the wrong apartment, which is, you know, the obvious overstatement, understatement of, of the year, and proceeded to kill someone in their apartment. Here's where the aspects of where I say you have to go into federal court. Because when you're asserting federal rights, a wrongful death is an act to where a person through their negligence, which walking in the wrong apartment, as she claimed, is. You also have to understand that this is one time where a family member can bring a suit because their in injury is actually the loss of their family member. And then a lot of times it becomes an economical issue to where the economic or financial loss is the actual loss along with the occurrence of the negligent act which grants them standing to pursue a wrongful death suit in federal court. When you're looking at Allen v. Wright, 1984, this case is actual textbook of what the wrongful death suit incurs with. Because one, her actions led directly to the death of Botham John. Her negligence because she stated that she was tired and she walked into the wrong apartment. So those are admitted acts. Now, just like I spoke um, last week about this, there are certain means to which, which getting this, getting those types of statements in because she's actually protected by a couple other Supreme Court precedents set forth by police officers. But with her the act of 
her statement can be taken through deposition because at the time she was not acting as a police officer, nor was she on duty. She had actually gotten off. So therefore her actions are that of a civilian. Now that's where it gets gets kinda kinda great for most people. But in the lawsuit, Botham John's mother can actually pursue and have standing to sue because of the immediate uh, relationship clause. And when we go into a case such as Worth v. Sheldon, 422-US-490-1975, petitioners lack standing to sue when not directly injured by the defendant. Because in essence, the question of standing is whether the litigant is entitled to have the court decide the merits of the dispute or partial issues. Now, when you're talking about wrongful death, that is a partial issue because Baltimore John's mother was not the injured party, so to speak. She did not live with him. But there was an injury because her life, her son's life was taken. And therefore, there's a um, emotional aspect that's attached to that. But it has to be an immediate family member. So when we're talking about being stopped and being cited, and we're talking about the issues of, or even something as simple as an encounter where there is, what's their, what's the favorite one they like to use? Oh, in Georgia, their favorite one was disturbing the peace or you're loitering. And you could actually be standing in in a public area. Or a couple times we were told this and we were at a park. You know, and these are things that they are trying to do as revenue generators instead of being police officers. So, um, or you'll have, have them come and try to talk to you. If you don't talk to them, they'll consider it obstruction. And again, it's just for revenue generation. And when you're talking about that, the challenge is the state has no standing on the actions of a human being because they do not control your rights because they're God-given rights. They did not give them to you. The state cannot take them away. And they want you to believe that they can because they want you to believe that they are almighty when in fact, once they take their oath of office, once they sign it, once they agree to uphold the Constitution and the state's Constitution, they are servants because the, the Constitution itself is a trust document. Now, I've also read read into the um, one of the videos the fact that the Georgia State Constitution actually states that the pub, all public officers are trustees of or yeah are trustees of the people. And therefore, amenable to them at all times, which mean if you ask them a question, they must answer. Now, a lot of them do not like to do that, which is funny because a lot of people say, oh, well, that's policy. That's policy. That's policy. No, that's a fiduciary duty as an executive officer, as a public official, as a public servant. That is your fiduciary duty. That is a contractual agreement, which is filed in most state courts where the police officer is located at. And it's simply placed into 
what they call risk management. What you have to do whenever you're looking for that is you have to ask for risk management. And in doing that, a lot of times they'll give you a lot of BS and try to deter you from getting it. But it is yours because, again, they work for you because they have to work towards your benefit because you are part of the public. I see a lot of people that are going through and they're not understanding what it is. And they're saying, oh, well, you're you're informing people of concept. Well, the problem is law is not conceptual. Law is not theory. What you're talking about in law is close to definitive as humanly possible when you're talking about the aspects of understanding and deciphering the Constitution on what was meant when it was actually transcribed. So, whenever I speak of something when it, and it deals with law, it's not an opinion. It's not concept. It is actually something that is written down, which is why I give the case law. It's one of the things where a lot of times you're looking at or you're looking up cases that you see on the internet and they don't quite match up or you don't quite get the meaning or you don't quite understand where where anybody is coming from whenever they write these things down which is why I teach it in the manner I'm doing because not only do you want the case you want to understand the why because not every fourth amendment case deals with your situation. Not every form of a Terry stop deals with every situation. Not every form of photography and First Amendment free speech deals with just taking pictures, just taking video, just writing something down. All of these are different aspects, which is why I give them to you in different situations. I often try to give them to you in manners to which they're pretty much relatable in everyday life. Understanding that and understanding that whenever someone's trying to say you owe them something, say you you have to pay something, they have to have a right to that. They have to have done something. And when you're talking about the state versus anybody, the state lacks standing unless they're hired. I'm gonna say that again. They, the state lacks standing unless they are hired. And in order for a plaintiff to hire them, they have to physically have a contract directly with the person that is arguing the case. And there has to be an injured party. Again, Sheer v. Cullen. In order for there to be a crime, there must be an injured party. Now, when you talk about other things, such as Delaware v. Prowse because the Supreme Court held that police may not stop motorists without probable cause to suspect the crime or illegal activity to check their driver's license and auto registration and if they're not able to stop you, why? Because they cannot stop your freedom of locomotion without being able to articulate a crime. Again, that is part of a Terry stop. But it intertwines with Delaware v. Prowse because, oh, well, give me your license and we'll talk about it. We can't talk about it. You 
must articulate a crime. And we also know share of color. A crime is damage to person, damage to property. When you're also understanding the facts that all these cases have different meaning, have different aspects, different application, then you understand why it is, I say, as we go along, you learn um, police procedure. Because when the words of must is placed into a Supreme Court decision, it is something placed there for a reason. Just like whenever I spoke about in my YouTube video, words have power. The word must is a word that means something. And must means they have to do it. It's not a choice. It's an obligation. When I talk about the biggest words in law are the words if, and, or. They're not big as far as structure, but when you're talking about reasonable suspicion, they stop there so often. The conclusion of that is that huge word of because it's reasonable suspicion of a crime. That is the complete context of that sentence. And then in order to talk about a crime, they must be able to articulate it. In order for you to do something, they have to do something else. And if they are stopping you without cause, they have then violated their fiduciary duty. They've broken their oath. They become liable to you simply because they have not fulfill their obligation as a executive officer and they violated law which they are taught to uphold and they are deemed to know so again the reason why even let's say they use the word oh I was called out and that's probably true because they get called out now literally fent nothing the issue is when they're called out, the question is, great, you have a call. Did the caller articulate a crime or criminal activity? And they'll try to gloss over that because even a caller must articulate a crime. And if they're unable to do so, then there is no reason for them making contact. And then the contact itself is consensual. And if you choose not to consent with the contract, then they are no longer obligated to fulfill any duty to you other than leaving you alone. Because any detention, even in a casual conversation, if they assert their authority, such as telling you where you can or can't go and telling you things that you can and can't do, and it has not been asked for, that is called a show of authority stop. And anytime that happens, that is a Fourth Amendment violation. And again, that is something that goes contradictory to their oath of office, which is also evidence of their fiduciary duty. Now, I've got a couple other things that I'm going to talk about as we go along. Again, this is just like the YouTube series. The further we get into it, the more I'm going to talk about it's possible that these podcasts are going to get a little longer. And hopefully, if you have any ideas, any structures, anything that you want to discuss, any questions, feel free to leave them in the comments. Feel free 
to hit me up um, via email, which is greatestnow at yahoo. And hopefully I can get back to you and we can keep going and start getting better at applying the entire application of self-defense when we're going to court and we're being encountered by not necessarily just the good police officers that are allowing the bad behavior, but also to get rid of these poor behaving police officers that are out here, that are doing harm, that is making the masses look horrible. So keep that in mind. In order for there to be standing, there has to be a direct link for them being injured. They cannot bring up a third-party claim. And we're going to go into the aspects of even a third-party claim because whenever you have a prosecutor speaking out, they're talking about something that they're not a witness to. And they're either a witness or they're prosecuting, but they cannot give statements on the record without actually being a witness or being there or actually being an injured party. I'll go further into that as we go, but just know things such as that are coming. So hope everybody has a great day. Keep listening. And if you want to support your boy, it'll probably be on one of the links in YouTube. So go ahead and check it out. Supreme Decisions on YouTube. And talk to you guys soon. Peace.